like the cross of Coronado in honor of the Broken Hearts Gallery. What physical artifact from one of your past relationships belongs in a museum? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and oh boy, for my first Valentine's Day with my first boyfriend, freshman year of high school, all of these things are in scare quotes, I made him some kind of collaged box before we went on a double date to Red Lobster, and I don't know what was on that box, I have blocked it out, but uh, apologies to any museum that acquires it, since I'm sure it will be embarrassing for all. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm not sure why we're picking the most embarrassing things to go into the museum, <laughs> but I also did. And uh, I once made a this just pathetic frog out of, like, stones that I collected at a beach in seventh grade because I had no money, and I was deeply <laughs> I gave it to a girl. I was so deeply embarrassed by it, even at the time. I'm just like, what am I doing? I'm the, I am the worst gift giver I am today, even. Like, I cannot come up with a good idea for a gift, so I made a stone frog. I'm an idiot. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. When I was dating a girl named Kate, I bought a McCain Palin t-shirt to make her laugh one evening. And my email has been on the worst Republican Party lists ever since. And maybe I should have taken that turn in politics more seriously. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm respectfully passing on this question. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 316. It's Pandemic 26, although I believe Tenet is already out. So what did we decide? It's not out in every theater. Oh. I want to be clear about that. It's only in like I mean, I, it's not out in any of the America. theaters in my state, so, exactly. uh, so it's true. The pandemic, All right, so pandemic 26. The number keeps it going is. up. Uh, it's Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. That is the day that in 1950, the Hank McCune show, which is a show I've never heard of before, it was the first uh, use of a laugh track on television. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a funny joke we yeah. just made. Uh, we're all here, usually this time of year, David and I, uh, and sometimes Batches would be off traveling to uh, some various film festival, but nope, joke's on us, we're not going anywhere, so we're all here, and David, instead of riding on a gondola in Venice, gets to read the reviews. Festivals are still happening, it should be noted. Sure, we're just not going anywhere. I, I want to spotlight yeah. David's coverage, I guess, because we were talking about it before the podcast, he's working <laughs> hard guess. to review the movies, and Jesus. we were like, wait, it's happening? Oh, okay. Yeah, the, we'll have to go read those that, reviews then, I guess. <laughs> as uh, my co-hosts know, uh, festival coverage the rate and the volume you have to do it these days seems impossible. The only thing that makes it at all within the realm of feasibility is that you're essentially living in a bubble. I mean, you're not doing your laundry or taking care of your kids or uh, thinking about any of the things that well, usually take care of in your, in your home day. life. You're in a very different kind of bubble this year, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> trying to churn out the same volume of work from your apartment for movies that you've just watched over watermarked links when you have a, uh, a baby in the next room and all of your ordinary chores to do plus more is a very different and even more difficult experience. I don't recommend it. Um, yeah. We have a bunch of reviews. Uh, let's start with Melissa T1234 who says, really? And gives us two stars. 
I'm a few episodes behind and felt compelled to write a review after David lamented that he can't say the C word and then did the lazy thing of saying Michaela Cole was basically replacing Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I generally like your podcast, but I did not get this. Well, to the second point first, uh, that was like a dumb half-baked joke and I guess a lot hackier than I realized at the moment. Uh, I wouldn't sweat it too much. As to the first thing, I wasn't lamenting the fact that I can't say the C word as though it had been like canceled or I had been censored in some way. I was more lamenting that it has acquired, in this country anyway, such a misogynistic connotation that I no longer wanted to say the C word, which uh, otherwise, especially if I were in the UK or something like that, it feels like a fun swear to say. I will also point out something that I was just reading, and I did read this review in advance. I did a little bit of research. Uh, according to Medium.com, which is definitely a reputable source of information that uh, people mm. just can't write on at will, uh, while vagina is used much more commonly in colloquial speech to refer to the genitals of people with vulvas than the C word is, its origins are defined by its service to male sexuality, making the C word, interestingly enough, the least historically misogynistic of the two. An interesting point of fact. Doesn't make you any more wrong to uh, complain about how we handled it in a previous so episode. So are you saying you're going to start using the C word? No, I am not, because I am not going to be <laughs> carrying around that Medium post in my phone at all times. Uh, but I appreciate you calling us out for both those things. Way to keep us honest. Thank you us. for listening for me. For me. Well, I mean, most of the shit we got this week was for Dave. Uh, it was it was uh, a balance between the S A seven E D A seven E the save Dave seven <laughs> hashtag uh, and also people who were complaining about the sound mix error uh, from last week. One mis- um, a man can't make one a mistake. mistake. I'm, I'm going to be defending Dave to the end of this Perfect track record for ten years. Yeah, it's definitely not a perfect track record, but thank you. Listen, it's one mistake is all an airplane pilot needs, <laughs> all a, uh, submarine captain needs, and I treat Dave. Dave that's is true. The yeah. I was about to say podcast. Dave went full Sully on this. Yeah, our, <laughs> our listeners come to this podcast with their lives in Dave's hands, and he let them all down. Uh, but wow. TK Crazy Cat says background music drowning out the talking. I appreciate these folks in the discussions. Listen periodically. Wanted to hear the reflections of Chadwick Boseman's death in the latest episode, only to have it completely drowned out by the music. Rush, ugh. And other segments were as well drowned out. And lasting far too long, just an intro. I had to stop listening to Jarring and Intrusive. Just double check your levels, please. Thanks. It's Rush's there was- Tom wow. Sawyer because, like him, I got to watch my own funeral. It was a very wow. important <laughs> music break. And then it didn't Dramatic. get faded out because I switched audio editing programs uh, anyway, a couple weeks ago. And it just faded. Dave is a uh, podcast engineer extraordinaire. Uh, and there was one audio glitch last week. <laughs> I heard about it from a lot of you. Thanks for listening. It won't happen again. Uh, Dune, well, Robert Frost Dune says, save Dave seven, seven men. A hem, but, 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 mank, mank, but, mank, mank, but, but, mank, but, mank, mank, but, but, scoob. Thanks, David. Now, in seriousness, I'm having a daughter in February. I would like to know if you read read a dad book that you liked and recommend. A lot of dad-centric books are pretty lame, and I'm not sure why we would marry men like this. Like, from dude to dad, which just basically says it's okay to be a shoulder for your wife to cry on, even if it feels emasculating. Uh, It's good advice. I... You know, worth paying a lot of money for. And then there's the dad handbook, which teaches you how to make a diaper out of duct tape and a sock. (laughs) <laughs> also, one that is written more currently. Some books are written in the '90s, and I don't even know and don't even know smartphones exist. So, why would I want advice from that? Also, Katie and Patches, if you have a book to recommend, please chime in. Yours truly, from Dune to Dad. I would say that you know, of the many things I'm sure I could be doing better as a dad, being more MacGyver-like 
uh, in general would probably come in handy. So that one book about duct taping a diaper together probably uh, has some good tips. But uh, come on, anytime like Matt Patch has built like a fucking swing set this weekend. I did. That's true. I did. Like, you know, that's true. Stream dad energy this week. Matt Patch has recommended the swing set instruction manual. He did. No, I actually don't. Oh my God, I don't. This play set was all. It's like. If you ever think Ikea is bad, this plastic playset that I built, the swing set, was like sub five levels down from that. All pictures, no words. Horrible. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a, too, I, Fuck you. Oh, wait. Is the review over? Because I do have a recommendation to make. The review is over. So go ahead. Okay. So this isn't really the genre you're looking for, but if you're looking for just like writing about being a dad that will make you want to be a dad, I feel like a lot of what Calvin Trillin wrote. You guys have already – he writes for The New Yorker a lot. He's still alive. Uh, but he like writes a lot about his wife and daughters and like their life in the West Village and just makes like parenthood scene like this great adventure that you get to pass on to kids. Um, and I feel like that might be a useful, like not instructive thing, but a to get you in the mood to to raise some kids, uh, read some Calvin Trillin. Yeah. And my recommendation would be to not think of book parenting books as dad books and read everything that your wife buys uh, mm, yeah. to raise kids and um, com- you know think of the job as equal and think of the job as necessary and think of uh, as not a dad's uh, you know there are not dad assignments and mom assignments pick up every book and I'm, the one I'm reading right now because I'm still reading parenting books is uh, oh how God. to talk so how to talk so little <laughs> kids will listen uh, how to not how to talk so little that the kids will listen how to talk so little kids will listen I should <laughs> emphasize the words how to talk there. so little <laughs> hey get up go nailed it nailed it I was saying to a friend today that. I read a bunch of books before the, our son was born, and I didn't find anything particularly useful except for, although the birthing partner has some good advice, but I did find one thing incredibly useful, as did my wife, was uh, the chapters about the delivery itself, and like what th- that can prepare you for how to react on those uncertain days when you're not exactly sure if your wife is going to labor, how you can make yourself useful when she is, uh, and so forth. I mean, even just learning about how to massage a certain part of the back to ease labor pains um, goes a long way in those moments. Take I think that we took a day long class, which also yeah. proved valuable, mostly so that you could see firsthand that there were other people in the world who were even less equipped to be a father than you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I think. Yeah, I, I imagine the baby books or child books will become more valuable as my kid gets older than they were when it was just abstract and he wasn't alive yet. Uh, I hope that helps. Um, also, CC the Professor says, you're all cool. Aw, 36. Well, I'm 46, and I think a lot of you rock. TJ Wells says, nice. what is Girl Boss May Never Die? Winner, best movie podcast running 10 years or more that had a name change way in the past that has been mostly forgotten and is or has been hosted by four people, a tie with film spotting. Um, CADS023 <laughs> says, is it too late to save Dave Seven? My husband introduced me to Fighting in the War Room many moons ago, and it was a struggle to listen to the first several podcasts. A struggle. I don't really like people arguing, interrupting, or talking over each other, but that's kind of like this podcast whole deal. See the name of the podcast. But once you get used to the rhythm and the host dynamic, it becomes significantly less aggravating, and dare I say, entertaining, particularly when David and Patch has gotten into a verbal tussle and Katie has to put on her mom pants. Stray thoughts on the host. <laughs> I have never met David, but if there's a movie character doppelganger that could be a stand-in, it would have to be Cecil from A Room with a View. If you haven't seen this 
this movie, Cecil's what David Ehrlich himself described as the most punchable Daniel Day-Lewis performance of all time. Not really a compliment, but maybe entertaining to dwell on. Uh, side note, CAD 023, I would be any Daniel Day-Lewis character so long as I could have those cheekbones, am I right? Two, the female part is underwritten. It's a bit of a sausage fest, but I can accept that Katie, I can accept that because Katie is a goddess. Three, Patches is fine. Four, uh, the only reason I'm writing this review is because Dave Seven is on my other favorite podcast, The Storm. So if you kill him, it would be a real bummer for me. Uh, we have two more reviews. Are they long? Wait, I just need to ask a very quick question. Yeah. Uh, based on that review, Katie, if you, yes. if when David and I get in an argument and you put on your mom pants, what are you wearing before that? Mm, you'll uh this is what zoom will reveal over time so you have to keep uh <laughs> keep, keep one of the great mysteries out. of the podcast you know we're a jj abrams show in the end what is, uh, what we are we're going to read Noel runkle's review one review that was emailed to us from down under and grace and luke we will get to you next week i promise uh Noel runkle is going to bring up tenet which is what i want to read his review a question for the pod I tried a few Googles, and I couldn't figure this out. So obviously the only right choice is to write a review, and I hope for a response. I live outside Kansas City, Missouri, and Thursday night I went to see Tenet at a local drive. Hashtag, we live in a twilight world. I've got a question below, but I did want to take this moment to say thanks for a great podcast. I came to this after a friend recommended I listen to History of Westeros, which led me to Storm of Spoilers, which led me here. And from here I discovered Blank Check, and now I hate any podcast that even mentions billions. Good. Uh, My question may contain a light spoiler. So I'll give you this chance to stop reading here. Uh, let me scan it real quickly and see if there's what a spoiler. A, what is a spoiler I for? I don't think so. For Tenet. Uh, at the drive-in, the audio for Tenet was streamed over FM radio to my car. For most of the movie, that worked out well. I was actually surprised at how well I could hear things in my cheap old car. For the final 30-ish minutes, however, I heard zero dialogue, not even a hint of it. I could see characters speaking on screen, but all I could hear was the score and lots of explosions. Did I miss anything? Or is that how it would sound in any theater? I was so confused by the movie, I believe either answer. Is that Nolan, or is that bad audio? (laughs) I hope your trip to a Connecticut mall can help me out. Thanks. This is a a more difficult question to answer than you might think, because the last 30 minutes of Tenet are basically incomprehensible without uh, an elaborate dialogue, uh, elaborate diagram like the one that I just read on Reddit, and it's funny because the final 30 minutes of this movie are actually introduced by Andrew, not Andrew, uh, what's the Taylor Johnson, that guy? Aaron, Aaron Taylor, Taylor Johnson. Johnson. Aaron Taylor Johnson literally creating a diagram that he walks you through in detail as to what is about to happen. Then as soon as it starts happening, I was immediately confused. Um, wow. There is talking in that sequence, I believe. I don't know if I understood any of it, even if I could hear the words. Um, and not in the way that people usually have trouble understanding Nolan's dialogue, but in that I literally did not understand what was happening with some sort of temporal pincer attack. But again, Reddit can help you out here. I don't think it's reason enough to. Have well, to go back and it see sounds like it sounds like he did another IMAX Bane teaser mix where uh, the the dialogue's just mixed wrong. Because this is this review isn't the first. Not mixed wrong, mixed. To his. It's, yeah, it's not like Peculiar. he's. Like, doesn't no, know he's I'm doing. sorry. I think he does not know what he's doing. If this is okay. happening, well, um, I was able to understand. Uh, the, my only problem understanding the dialogue intended is that they are speaking in invented Chris Nolan jargon a lot of the time that uh, I could not follow. But the words themselves, I could hear. Uh, there is a lot of chaos because, like, 
the flows of time are colliding in the last 30 minutes of this movie. And a lot of the dialogue, I think, is probably being played backwards. Um, and there are also, like, a oh, bunch Lord. of helicopters. I don't know. It's Don't worry about it. I don't think anything that's said is particularly important there. Um, but uh, we'll talk about Tenet in a future episode when more of my co-hosts have seen it. Finally, we're going to end this review segment by uh, reading a review from Australia. Uh, land of spiders. Damn it. I left this review on iTunes, but I'm in Australia and I don't think you can see them. Anyway, five stars and a bone to pick. Wait, do we have the name of this reviewer? Uh, I don't see it here. Mm. The review oh, came yeah. from uh, iTunes to Facebook and we're not going to dock someone's mm. last name. So let's, let's Fair just enough. Uh, I really enjoy this podcast and the banter between the four hosts. I love that none of them are afraid to speak their mind and argue a point. Too many podcasts are way too amiable. Love me some robust discussion. David Ehrlich is always is almost always on the money for me in regards to art house and independent films, but completely opposite on blockbusters. No way is Fallout better than Ghost Protocol, uh, my friend. Way. Katie is a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful. I mean, honestly, the last like thirty five minutes of Ghost Protocol, it's just generic shit. You really feel uh, how useless a uh, villain you have in that movie. Uh, whereas Fallout just keeps peeking, baby. Uh, Katie is a wonderful, firm, but fair mediator. And D.A. Ampersand E is almost always the voice of reason. Yes, Widows was overrated. Damn. Yeah. Even Patches. Wow. Even Patches, who shits me a lot of the time. Is that an Australian phrase? They shit me. They shit me. I shits see why me not. a lot of Let's the time. Let's make it one. Like you like I like I'm not shitting you. You usually say it. But patches is shitting him. Yeah. Negative. Yeah. Wow. Um, patches shits him a lot of the time. But this listener admires him for his conviction and is, agrees that patches is sometimes bang on in regards to how I feel for a film like First Man. My bone to pick is with David Ehrlich, who this week wrote an article titled "The Seven Best Movies Through Netflix in September." Among the titles is "Back to the Future." I have heard on more than one occasion, one of the last couple weeks, in fact that David deride this entire franchise. I recall the first time he said it because I audibly yelled, what a fool. There's an <laughs> asterisk there. Maybe he used a saltier language. Please explain why Back to the Future not only makes it on the list, but comes at a number four. Also, I really enjoyed your Q&A with Cooper Rafe and Dylan Galula for the movie Shithouse earlier today. The <laughs> film evoked In Search of a Midnight Kiss for me more than Before Midnight. Anyway, thanks again. I would say Before Sunrise. They're not, they're, they're college age, uh, but I know what you mean. Thanks again. Great podcast and extra appreciated in Melbourne's stage for lockdown. Shithouse is a really wonderful little movie. It once helped by this year. I did a Q&A. Stop trying to distract us from Back October to the Future. Answer yeah. up. Back to the Future. Listen, when I'm throwing together those new to Netflix lists, I'm not being too precious about you're it. Not I'm trying to. Shit. Trying to make sure that I'm trying to make sure that people know what is on Netflix, and I it's my understanding that a lot of people really love Back to the Future and would want to know that it was going to be streaming this month. Uh, I personally just don't have any special affinity for those movies. I haven't seen Back to the Future in a very long time. I don't have like any antipathy towards them, uh, but like a lot of those. 80s classics, it just doesn't have a special place in my heart. Um, but we do, uh, I, I hope that I hope that settles everything down and that America and Australia can lower their weapons and there is something kind of tenant-like about the, the water spiraling down the toilet bowl in one direction here and in the opposite direction in Australia. Maybe Christopher Nolan was inspired oh, by that. <laughs> um, anyway, thank, it's called thank you all inversion. for the review. Uh, now that Dave Seven's death is uh, not, although he may be killed by our listeners for his audio mix-up, it's not uh, hanging Ooh. over the immediate episodes. We might get few reviews, um, but I do look forward to reading them, and you can always skip over them. And Grace and Luke, we'll get to your review next week. 
I would love for some other reviews to come alongside that. Thanks for listening. iTunes, Fighting the War Room. Uh, guys, I saw Mulan. It's on Disney+. Plus. I don't remember a lot about seeing Mulan. I saw it a little <laughs> under a week ago. Uh, it's on Disney+. Plus. It. I have heard uh, people who saw it at the premiere in Los Angeles, which was in March, which is a wild thing to realize that it was like it had a premiere, and then by the end of that week, nothing was opening anymore. Um, I've heard that it works better on the big screen. I don't know if that matters, because who knows if anyone will see Mulan on the big screen, and I don't think the fact that it's like it's playing in a kind of all, like stiff and serious theaters. version of a cartoon would be changed by it being on a big screen. I don't know. Like Disney has yet to convince me that remaking any of their animated movies is a good idea. And as much as Mulan might be a victory for representation, it doesn't also doesn't seem to be winning that argument. What do you guys think? Uh, oof. I mean, the movie is not good. <laughs> the <movie laughs> is, that is what I was trying to say. The movie is better than other Disney live action movies. Which is not saying something, unfortunately. If people recall us reviewing The Lion King on this podcast, we I felt like that was we went nuclear on that one. That was that was real bad. Um, bottom of the barrel. This is a slight improvement in that there are real people in it, and <laughs> they are attempting to perform something and emote. Uh, I just it's stagnant. The whole thing is barely. It really made me want to. It made me go back and like watch bits of the animated version just to know if it was as boring or uh, trite as as this version. And it's not. I mean, in, in true Disney fashion, like as, as simple as those stories can be, as wearing their heart on their sleeves, emotion wise, uh, as they are. I don't know the, the the combination of songs, the combination of the fighting montages, and everything Mulan is going through as a character. I know she comes alive in animation in a way that this movie does not bring her to life at all uh, as a real person and trying to make her journey more complicated, I guess. What did you think of... So the major change of this movie is that there's a new villain. Um, they get rid of Mushu the dragon who tells her everything to feel in all the different parts of the movie um, because that was kind of offensive and using that cultural iconography and they really wanted to make this movie more appetizing to the Chinese market, clearly. Um, and so uh, Apparently they may have uh, overcompensated well, I was about to say, if, if not to the Chinese market, then to the Chinese government. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of reporting. Something broke today as we record this on on Monday um, on the Washington Post about just like uh, overstepping their bounds in China, making this movie. And uh, it's a whole political thing. I don't think we should try and unpack it, but there is a lot of good writing about it. So take all of this. I mean, I guess take this naysaying with a a grain of salt. Um, We're not I don't think any of us are really going to bat for Mulan. Um, But yeah, there's a whole political aspect to this movie that should be unpacked and is in the Washington Post and elsewhere. So go there for that. Um, My point is they added a villain to this played by Gong Li. um, And it's I don't know. She's a witch and she kind of makes sense to Mulan. Like they have a connection and uh, in the end they bond and maybe Mulan wants to save this villain. Not everyone's so bad. I don't know. What did you think of that twist? What is the point of all this? The villain who says, we're not so unlike you and I. I I, I can't remember if she literally says that, but it's very much that style. And she has great costumes. She's the best character. Everybody has great costumes. She's the best character in the movie. Uh, Why? Why? 
because she's super powerful and may not be respected by her cohorts, but they all are in awe of her and will not cross her and um, ultimately demands more respect for her gender and her gifts, I think, than Mulan does. And when it comes down to the we're not so different, you and I thing, you kind of want Mulan to give up the empire? Like, nothing that we see of Mulan's life makes us think that this is a good way for her to live. And the softening of the villains uh, to make room for this witch character means that we see nothing of the villains that makes me think that they're actually villains. Like, if I know things about, like, empires and... Uh, social structures that are like based on matchmaking and whatnot. Why wouldn't I want some pirates to go in there and tear that shit down? It's not, they're not straight up like the Mongols and they're not based in anything in history. So it's sort of, they're not literally the Huns. I always thought that was what they're supposed to be. I mean, I don't think, I don't think they're mentioned as that in this movie. They're mentioned as like, they, they still use the same, uh, male villain name. Uh, which I now forget because that's how forgettable this movie was and I haven't seen the animated film in a long time. But it's all, it all seems super vague. And like, I, I, I wonder how this movie plays to somebody that like hasn't seen the original or has no concept of like a culture other than theirs because I would feel like giving the nature of Western storytelling, if you put this version in front of a child, they're going to wonder why the bad guys are bad because mm. there's a whole montage where she's, you know, um, say basically saving her army, uh, from, uh, the bad guys before a bunch before, uh, she causes an avalanche and, uh, she is killing people just as much as they are killing people in the sense that nobody dies on screen because it's like a Disney movie. So, well, this- people definitely get shot with arrows and impaled. I was looking out yeah. there because shot I was with kind arrows. of wondering how gruesome it would be as that, you know, this was the up conversion. It went PG 13 for this live action remake. So really? Like, oh, it can get violent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it does. I also think that the action choreography uh, in this movie is shows off some very great stunt performers, but are actually really bad fights throughout and edited by the guy who edited Whale Rider as much as I could tell. And I feel like I can't, I, I was very confused by some of the cutting in this action. It's directed by the director of Whale Rider. Correct. Nicaro is a strange choice for this. Yeah, it's a strange choice. And like, I don't, I can't see anything Whale Rider-ish in the direction that I don't like. But I can see in the editing, which is why I called that guy out for also being brought along. I was like, I'm sure they have a great working relationship, but it's like it, you're you're watching a lot of the actress who plays Mulan going in between choreographed motions and swinging a sword off screen where we hear like a clank and a guy go like, oh, but like the contact isn't seen. People don't keep their same positions in between cuts. There's lots of punches in to avoid like weird contacts. So even if this is like a violenced up version, maybe what I felt is that stuff being inserted, but there wasn't really an action sequence that made use of, uh, the, where they were in the sets, uh, the special powers that Mulan has. I think the most useful thing is at the beginning when they're showing that her chi is so powerful she could chase chickens and not get hurt. Uh, and that's also, just what the hell is yeah, that's that good about? Sequence. Yeah. The whole chi no. thing is really strange. It is. It's the force. Yeah. Now, obviously, yeah. Why, the, uh, I mean, several the people have made this comparison, films. but. 
No, sorry. Obviously, the Disney animated films have had really long shelf lives on video and have always played well at home. Uh, but I can't help but notice that a lot, I haven't seen Mulan. Uh, you know, I just life is too short to, to watch any more Disney animated remakes unless I've been assigned to, or live action remakes rather. But uh, some of the people I talked to who saw the movie at screenings in March were not raving about it, but were a little bit warmer to the movie than the critical consensus was. This week, how much do you guys who watch this movie at home feel like it lost something? There was like an inert quality to it that was especially pronounced on your TV that you maybe an elements of it you could have forgiven more easily on the big screen. I don't know if something becomes more inert on the small screen. I think it's the the grandeur of it is is reduced. Um, I guess that's might be Yeah, and like I think the like the like excitement and the momentum of an action sequence like doesn't do as much to cover up like kind of the 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 not potholes but like how the story just isn't doing that much work for you. Um I also feel like there was just like a lot of excitement about being like here is this movie about this like Asian woman hero on the big screen and like it's not that like representation in television or on tel- like small screens has been like that much better, but I do think some of that like you know, history making impact is reduced by not seeing it like on the biggest screen possible. There's a, I mean, there are, it's, it's small consolation, but there are hundreds of wonderful movies, action movies starring Asian women. Uh, if you, I have to say you, like, go, I mean, not, to, not, you made, you know, not well, made by a Hollywood studio. Like, well, not, well, go but, USA is uh, rolling. It's, <laughs> Studio eyes at Mulan. For sure. There are, uh, you know, I'm not to diminish the importance with the impact of the message sent by Disney bankrolling a movie like this, but at the same time for audiences that are really starved for that kind of representation are looking for it wherever they can get it. I would love to see a good movie to boot. Uh, there are plenty of great yeah. options for you. And I think that's where Mulan falls short. Like the action is not good enough, right? The There is maybe a reason to make this movie in live action. Try and take the eons of Chinese action movies and put them into a big blockbuster with this story around it, with the, the budget for co- lavish costumes and the Disney history and what Mulan meant to so many people the first time around. Maybe they could conjure that magic again, but use more cinematic technique from the East. And uh, there's just nothing here. It, it really feels like a Disney stunt show or something that's the, as Dave mentioned, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't feel like choreographed, action it just feels like glamour shots and then i don't know the very very familiar story beats i don't even feel like the story beats are kind of woven together as well as they were in the animated version i really felt like i the middle of this movie when she goes to training is so boring it's well, yeah, just, it's just like, like a thing happens and then another thing happens, happens and then they carry some more water buckets and they carry more water buckets oh man and, yeah like and like in the musical like i don't know the original mulan that well but like i know let's like make a man out of you and like that's a great song and it's just replaced by a montage and, you're, and like it plays like some of the music in the background and you're like oh this is just reminding me yeah. that like a musical version of this can like make this lively and now it just kind of feels so dutiful yeah, so this I guess is a step up from some Disney live action movies, but not a tr- you know they they're not making a case here. I still don't think they've made a live action remake that has a purpose, which is pretty staggering because they've now made many of them. I mean, Pete's Dragon is uh, is the yeah. exception that proves the rule. But see, um, I never really think of that as a live action, right? Movie because because they, live action too. So 
but because they picked something that had you know such uh, a diminished legacy to it that doesn't have a rabid fan base, say, also, yeah, they don't have to be slavish to the original. <laughs> I mean, they're not just yeah. feeding into the nostalgia machine, and they hire a filmmaker like David Lowry who and give him permission to run with it, and that's exactly what he did. Yep. Uh, but I don't think that there's much purpose or hope in them remaking anything post Little Mermaid. Um, just because the, the agenda is not going to align with quality. Next up is The Little Mermaid. Actually, <laughs> sure. I think before The Little Mermaid, we're getting a Cruella de Vil movie starring Emma Stone. Uh, sure. I'm down with that. Sure. That's yeah. definitely in the can. I mean, Maleficent was also Is fine, Emma Stone so. our Glenn Close? Do you think Emma Stone will do Albert Knobs <laughs> in her Emma Stone life? has an Oscar. <laughs> I mean, if you Ooh. want to feel wow. old. Right, you're right. It, it, Katie, that yeah, was, actually, that, that was, was, that was better. Yeah, that was. <laughs> I mean, Albert Noms exists because Glenn Close doesn't have an Oscar. Right? Live action Albert Noms. <laughs> Finally. Bring back Albert the Albert Noms the way you meant to see it. So this past week, finally, after being in beta for a while, I'm sure Katie was playing it in beta. So Katie, I know this is going to sound like a real bore, but uh, I know, I know. I'm going to go get some water. We're going to talk talk about about Marvel's Avengers, a new Avengers thing. Why not? It's not a movie. It's a video game. Yes, it's out on PlayStation 4 and Xbox and your PC. And I think you can play it on Stadia. Whoever fuck does that. Hey, Katie, do you do do, uh, Google Stadia? Literally, what is Stadia? <laughs> okay, good. Um, and Dave and David have played this big Avengers tentpole game, which should be like the biggest thing on the planet, you'd think, based on how popular Avengers and Endgame and all that shit was. Um, David demanded we talk about it. That's how big a deal this game is. <laughs> and so, David, how, how is Avengers, the video game? Well, I assume they would also kind of be the biggest thing in the world, not, you know, it would be, it would make some kind of cultural impression, which is why I went out of my way to try to get a review copy of it and write about it for work. Uh, and all the video games that I've covered so far, I've seen you guys before we started recording were video games that I loved and uh, was really into and was more than willing to spend, you know, 30 hours diving into those worlds. I had yet to be in a position where I had to write about a bad video game on like the bad movies that we write about all the time. But it's one thing, you know, a good movie and a bad movie are both 90 minutes similarly spent, but uh, I am not going to be pouring 25 hours into or more uh, given the open-ended multiplayer modes in this game to a bad video game. And I was, uh, I was disappointed at how quickly I just, you know, hit a wall with this one. Uh, it's sort of an old school beat them up. You know, you get to be all the adventures. You start in a in a nice in a nice twist uh, as Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel. She's Miss Marvel, right? I'm getting that right. I yes. should not be the one tossing out these facts. Yeah. Uh, I know more. I think I know. I, I know more about her alias or her. Yeah, she makes. Her, I know what she does now. I know her deal. Um, I just have a hard time remembering all the superhero names, but uh, um, you play as her. There's been some event with AIM, which I now know of because of Marvel Strike Force, and uh, <laughs> there's a big problem in San Francisco, and a bunch of people who happen to be there got superpowers, which the game introduces a disease and. 
Okay, so you get to play as Comic-Con Captain America and Thor and shit. Me. Is it fun? Anyway, it yeah, fun? you beat it. You just beat up endless waves of AIM robots and things, and it is uh, fun for about seven minutes as you are swapping through all the various Avengers before you are just Kamala Khan for a long time and then Hulk and so forth. Uh, and as soon as you get to the first proper, proper level of the game, it's about as amusing as Streets of Rage, but without uh, the sweet, sweet music and all of the lead pipes. And after beating the first the second proper level and like doing a couple of like training missions in the harm, which I don't know if that's a real thing to Marvel fans or if it's introduced to the game, I was just so fed up with how repetitive it was that I uh, I was I was done with it. But to my not horror, but surprise, I saw Dave tweeting all weekend long about the progress he was making in this game and maybe he uh, unlike myself got far enough where he felt comfortable dipping into the multiplayer mode and found something there to sink his teeth into and enjoy but uh, Dave what, what's your experience with the game how have you found the strength to keep playing past the first hour <laughs> uh, the campaign's really good I played through all of the campaign and I still think it's really good. So you play, it starts off like uh, David said, you play as a teenager, she meets the Avengers. There's a big crisis. You get to play as all the Avengers and then cut to five years later. Uh, Kamala's an inhuman, which it, in the purpose of this game is basically an X-Men being hunted by the government. She needs to put the Avengers back together. So as you progress through the campaign, you actually earn Avengers back and then you have to level them up. The purpose being that by the time you finish the campaign, uh, I think it took me like 10 hours, 12 hours, something like that, that most of the game is in the post-game content, which is not only the multiplayer, but stuff they're going to release later, Kate Bishop, Spider-Man, Hawkeye, New Heroes, other like potential storylines. Um, all of that stuff is boring. All the post-game stuff is exactly <laughs> what David's describing. Uh, I don't know if you but, guys have played I'm waiting am, for like, the good part. Wait, Dave's I about to get said, to the good part okay, about the okay. game. What's the good part? The good part of the game is the campaign based around Kamala is really strong. And by the notion of putting the Avengers back together, um, there's a reason why the game feels that like a tutorial through the campaign, which it does. It's going to point you in the right direction. It's going to tell you when you have new gear that you need to upgrade. It's going to tell you... It's going to use a button you could press to make a little fairy spread out of your chest and basically tell you which direction oh. to go. Uh, all of that's fine. That wasn't in the movies. They that was not in the movies. movies. I know. I wish More I could fairies. press the button and have the fairy <laughs> yeah. come out. Uh, and it is kind of... It does kind of get button mashy, but because you're progressing as these heroes... You're allowed to unlock some of their powers to make them feel more like, you know, the Avengers, but only enough to get up to, like, the final boss battle, where, again, you switch off between all the Avengers, so it kind of bookends the story that way, where it's like, you get them, you find out why they're all awesome and why they're all different, and then you get shoved in the multiplayer. With the multiplayer, you're supposed to be playing along for better gear with other people to try to, like, level up your heroes. How can you get a better... Metal metal gear. Uh, Dave... Dave was born into the darkness, whereas I merely adopted it in terms of uh, the, the Marvel universe. And so I think one of the things I really enjoyed about, you know, the brief time I spent with the game and, and that having Kamala Khan be the main character is that she is not in the uh, MCU so far. And so it was all new to me and I could sort of get on the ground level. I really enjoyed meeting her dad and you probably a prologue where she's a younger teenager and you sort of get the sense of who she is, and where she's coming from. Um, and it definitely threw me in a way that 
it shouldn't in a way that it certainly won't throw the comic book fans that all of the Avengers look different than they do in the movies. They're not modeled after <laughs> the actors. They're all played by different actors. One by Troy Baker, who plays Joel in The Last of Us. Um, and they, it, it all felt kind of ersatz to me in a way that I know that it shouldn't. But, uh, you know, someone coming into the movies. Well, what did. David's saying is the game did not bring his dreams of the movies. Right, right. I guess there's, there's other, I've played games that have tried to be this before and they land on a lot of things. I think everybody wanted this game to be PS4's Spider-Man because that game's great. It's fun to play. It has a great story. It's very cinematic. It really gets all the characters. You get to but fight a lot of villains. It's great. It was it was unreasonable to expect this game to be fun to play. I mean, uh, this game actually <laughs> this game is really fun to play given what it is. If you play another game like uh, Avengers Ultimate Alliance, which has just as many particle effects and just as many buttons to smash, and like three times as many heroes, it doesn't have the sort of nuance. Like this is much more like. If you're playing Captain America or if you're playing Thor, then you're playing Arkham Asylum, so you're doing combo-based combat. If you're playing, uh, you know, uh, Iron Man, you're playing Destiny, so you're basically, like, support, you're always in the air, you're choosing between, like, missiles and guns and things. There are moments when you work the characters up enough that Hulk feels like Hulk and Thor feels like playing Thor, and the sound mix is good enough that you're like, this is why I bought the game. The problem is, is those are all in a campaign that only constitutes half the game. And so any characters, like when they've introduced Kate Bishop as the next hero, the female Hawkeye, what incentive do I have to play these same levels with these same robots to level up Kate Bishop so she could feel like Kate Bishop when I already have a Hulk that I've spent, you know, 12 hours. I'm just such an easy, I'm such an easy mark for games that are about, you know, grinding and collecting gear. And I, I am hopelessly addicted in ways that disgust me to Marvel Strike Force and Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes and all that shit. But every time I got a new, like, Hulk bangle or, or whatever, that was one PowerPoint more uh, you valuable. Don't you collect ribs oh my or God. something? Rib cages for Hulk? Yeah. You collect rib cages for the Hulk. That's his upgrade. And also, the, Dear the just like the, the process of getting from mission to mission was so needlessly cumbersome and confusing. Uh, it all just felt like shovelware to me, and I know that we are in a very different era from the cash-in video game tie-in movies. That, and this isn't even that. I mean, this isn't a movie tie-in, uh, even though that is sort of how my brain compartmentalized it unfairly. Um, but we've come a long way from like the Batman, Superman, Nintendo sixty-four game. Oh man, sixty-four! Uh, Holy shit! <laughs> boy, um, you'll go YouTube that, everybody. Wait, is that a Batman Superman or is it just Superman? No, it's just, just Superman. Superman, Superman 64, yeah. Oh, boy. Um, but this really felt like... Uh, I, I couldn't believe it was from the same studio that made the recent spate of Tomb Raider games that were so good. Um, I wish All it right. would be more in the open. Anyway. Yeah. Final judgment. Final judgment. Katie, are you going <laughs> to... Yes. Now, Gul'dan is not in this game, but... Will, Ooh, no. You will know you, I only play Gul'dan Will you games. play Marvel's Avengers on your... Uh, uh, what console do you have? I forgot. Uh, none. I have an Apple TV. Can you play games on an Apple TV? You actually can play games on your Apple TV, not this game, hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, life's too short. This week, uh, uh, this weekend, I'm thinking of ending, th- ending things. The new Charlie Kaufman. Oh, Dave, movie. you are. Yeah, yeah, I am. 
Oh, oh. Mm, you okay. know, you Canceling know, the podcast once again. I think that uh, now that I've <laughs> yeah, got yeah, that, that, that editing gap was not that bad. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of ending this podcast again. Uh, I'm thinking of many things. The Charlie Kaufman <laughs> movie uh, hit Netflix. We all watched it. It, like other Charlie Kaufman movies, is a bit of a puzzler to untangle. We are going to talk about it in full spoilers because I think uh, the movie is only interesting if we could talk about it in that. If we're going to talk about it trying to avoid spoilers, then I would say it's um, not going to be a movie that you enjoy because it just seems like people know what they're getting if they're getting a Charlie Kaufman movie uh, now. And I, I think this movie hits expectations pretty square on the nose. The question I found myself... Um, wrestling with over i'm thinking of ending things and we could get into what the movie actually is through criticisms of it i think is in a movie where i said there was going to be spoilers the female main character never existed so it's literally impossible for the movie to pass the bechdel test i, I would say that you are oh boy uh i didn't even have like a sentence or a question <laughs> Where it is reasonable to assume that the female character your, does not exist. It is, it is, it's a reasonable premise, though. It's Anyway, finish your sentence, Dave. Um, uh, the way this movie ends from, I think, a very clear perspective of janitor Jake, uh, if you're going to make movies that comment this broadly on things... Uh, like uh, the loneliness of society on other people and whether or not we could feel empathy with people, but then anchor it so tightly to a white male who feels like he deserves more and then decides maybe he might blame it on, blame it on his mother. Is this movie going to hit anyone that needs to hear its message? Because I kind of feel like if you're going to do a movie about this, make it Fight Club. Like, give me something to fucking watch. Here, he, here, there are some great performances. Every time Tony Collette's on screen, love it. The um, weird stuff of her quoting uh, film reviews and poetry in the car, love it just as a performance piece. Jessie. When you say her, he's talking, of course, about the world's greatest living actress, Jesse Buckley. Yeah, sorry. She doesn't, have a, the movie. she doesn't have a consistent character name, so I went with her. But Jesse Buckley, we just call That's her Jesse fair. Buckley. The young woman. The young woman who doesn't exist. Um, a construct of a, male, um, a man's mind. I, it made me think a lot of things. It made me feel a lot of things. Uh, I think it's something that can be like solved to a way that I don't feel like there are questions in the movie that I need answered in order to better understand the movie. I'm just not sure who it's for and if it's going to find its audience by just plopping down Dave, on Netflix. Let me ask you a question before we get too far into the, to the takeaways and the reactions of the criticism. Sure. Can you, as a, as a master... Uh, of plot and plot recapping in our other podcast as well. What, what happens? What happens in this movie? In short, what is this movie like? What do we see uh, um, what, when the movie ended? What were you thinking about when you were digging into it? What actually happened? What actually happened in this movie? Yeah, what happens in this movie? Because uh, I mean, even though people are seeing this and it's spoilery, it's worth kind of recapping what happens, or at least what you thought happened. Oh, oh, well, I mean, I don't know if what I thought happened encompasses much in the movie, but it seems to be. A sad janitor named Jake is thinking about killing himself, thus the double entendre of the movie, because when we start, it is presented as if the young woman protagonist is thinking of ending a relationship with a younger Jake. But really what Jake is doing is creating a fantasy muse woman and inserting him into his memory to try to see 
if there is any reason that he should exist and if he could have possibly taken control over his life to make it anything better. If his diligence, uh, it was, I think, wasted all along or not. And because this real woman actually probably did exist at some point at bar trivia and he didn't ask for her number, he takes it, uh, the idea of her, and as the story progresses, not only do we time jump through his entire relationship with his parents, but we see him trying to create this impossible woman that would make everything okay, and as a result, her character shifts. Her job shifts, her haircut shifts, who she's quoting shifts, her name shifts, and she all the time she's getting calls from herself, which is really Jake, who is trying to get through to his subconscious and being like, all of this is kind of bullshit. You have to answer one question. Can I, before I, uh, before I explode, can I just say (laughs) that one of my favorite things about this extraordinary movie, which, which one might be my favorite film of the year thus far is how Kaufman deliteralizes so many of the things that I found a bit suffocatingly on the nose about Ian Reed's novel of the same name. Uh, all of the things that Dave is harping on and, and sifting through a very narrow sieve here are abstracted to the point of being almost irrelevant in the movie. So that's what, that's uh, my question. Movie. So who's this movie for? Right? I, I, I don't understand that question in almost any capacity because I think a work of art is always for people who If you're gonna to if it. you're gonna move do a movie but, about like uh white male toxic mentality. I don't think this movie is about any of the things that you just said it was about. I okay. Mean, I would only That's point great. you to Ooh. the Here we review go. That, Love it. Well I would only point you to the review that I wrote about, which uh, I don't read, all. David. <laughs> I'm not gonna uh, yeah, I'm not Jesus. gonna read that either. So if, you can either defend it or uh, <laughs> Well, hopefully our listeners I read your review, reading. David. Uh, I read you. your review. Um I I mean, first of all, the what's interesting about the whole like Manic Pixie Dream Girl white male entitlement element that they've bring into it here, which is very present in, in but in only in the same critical capacity it's been in all of Charlie Kaufman's work, uh, is that this is the first film that he's written that's come at it from a place of female interiority. Um, I mean, yes, that interiority is filtered through a number of different Filtered through. In the plot, o- originated but, uh, from men. Yes, but it is, uh, it's interesting. It's, the way a, it's, a, hallo- it's a way that my voice is filtered through a Halloween mask. It doesn't make me whatever I'm masked as. Yes and no. Uh, but I think that the agency that it gives her, at least in the moment for us, it, it, it is not, it, she doesn't feel pliant or subservient. I do think that like, you know, maybe the fight club analogy you make, at least in this one particular regard is at least more accurate in describing the relationship and how it plays out in the movie. But it, it doesn't feel like she has been manifested sphere like out of uh, Jesse Plemons's brain to sort of be at his back and call. Uh, but I really felt like this Thank movie was, you're very welcome. I'm glad that you responded. But, uh, I, I really feel like this movie, like a number of the things that Kaufman has written, um, is less to do with that than it is about sort of getting to the space between people, the isolation of being alive, the, the sense that, you know, no matter how close we are to one another and think we're on the same page, there's always sort of an imp- impassable rift between people that uh, can be isolating, make us all feel alone, even if we're all sort of alone together. Um, and uh, the egocentricity that comes with that, the idea is spoken in something like Synecdoche, New York, that, you know, we all 
Uh, we all know that everyone's going to die, and yet we all think that we are not, uh, which is an idea that comes up in different wording in this movie. Um, you know, it's the Oscar Wilde quote that is explicitly mentioned in this movie about how uh, other people, everyone is other people. Um, and, you know, this movie has a lot doesn't of he make, fun. Oh, wait, doesn't he make with, fun of that in Adaptation? Isn't there like a whole fucking thing in Adaptation he, where the bad screenplay ideas? These are ideas that there is a reason that Charlie Coffin, uh, you know, vibed with his book. Uh, and these are ideas that he would be the first person to admit have been percolating through his work, you know, since he started making it. But um, there is uh, a feeling that, you, you know, we're all trying to be our own people. We have our own experiences, but we're also all in this mind meld of culture and the way that uh, everything, including movies and Netflix and everything else is sort of, um, you know, infecting us even as we try to hold our own, have the integrity of our personalities. And I think the way that all of these various ideas swirl together and yes, do touch on some of the things that Dave, Dave was talking about, but not in the hyper-literal sense that I think you described them, um, certainly in a way that is incredibly critical of men like Jesse Plemons' character and is not letting them off the hook or or saying that, you know, giving a sort of, like, Garden State-like permission to the special uh, snowflake of a white guy. I mean, it's really raking him over the coals, I would think, and up to it, including the kind of unforgettable final scene. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't think that it was as simple as he laid it out. And I, and I think that the responses from all sorts of people that have come into this movie on Netflix uh, have suggested that it's for diversity of different people. I don't know. I don't think uh, I, the question of who it's for is not one that ever occurs to me when something is resonating so strongly because it seems to answer itself. I would certainly love it if Netflix had a comment board where you could watch the comments of people who turned this on. Yeah. Because I imagine there are a lot of people who have who have found that it is not for them, and um, I would be highly amused. I guess I guess Twitter and other social media platforms could function that yeah. way. If you I went should go around and look for that. Mile and search the time. I want to. Can I can I chime in on the real versus not real thing before Patrick chime in on all of it? Yeah, yeah. I'm not, gonna, yeah. I'm not, I'm so, not getting. Right. I was going to throw to you because I'm very curious about your whole take since you've read the book too. Yeah, I mean, so having read the book, I'm I'm largely with David in that I think the literal explanation of is she real or is she not real isn't that important, uh, especially in the book where you get to the point where it's kind of this like haunted house ending in a, in a high school where you're like watching this person like being stalked and tortured and then not tortured, but like she's scared, you're scared, the reader, and then you realize she's not real at the end and it feels like a real bait and switch. Um, I think the movie does more interesting things than that, but I also think it's worth considering like, cause we really are, as Dave said, like watching the story of this like lonely rural white guy, like kind of suffering with not having anybody connected in his life. And that is what the ending is about, whether or not it is like as literal, like has he made up this whole thing? Um, and I think there is like a, there is a level of like, why is this the version of the story that I need to see? Like, other than that, that is who Charlie Coffin always makes his movies about. Um, and then the, the kind of just broader experience of like being deeply uncomfortable the entire time you're watching this movie. It is so squirmy. It is painful. It is scary. Like you, there's these scenes with Tony Collette and David Thewlis that are like, gross and weird and that's all part of the goal but it's i think the ideas that david you're talking about are all there and present in it but i don't like i don't know if the participation is worth what i got from it even as it gets to the end and it's referencing oklahoma which is basically all i ask from any movie um there's there's a lot of valuable stuff in there um but then again i felt the same way about something like new york the first time i saw it and then when we rewatched it for this show a couple years ago i but like I really came around to it. So maybe it's a one of the few thing. movies that like I, my mantra is always that 
no work of art that like is truly great can be depressing because there's just the uplift that comes with something that speaks to you like that. But I, I tried rewatching Snacky New York, uh, you know, in advance of writing about this movie, and it's just like so punishing that no and matter you don't how much, find this punishing. No, I mean, I, I find this really exciting and funny. Um, and Synecdoche in New York is funny as well, but like it's just so resoundingly bleak that whatever it's giving me in terms of just like Kaufman's vision and the just the virtuosity of the whole thing that he's doing and the Brooklyn Armory, it's a crazy movie. Well, it's, just, you, it's never enough to push it over the hill for me, and I always kind of check out before the end because I can't take it anymore. Do you think that? Be- um, I mean, I, I kind of feel that way too. Synecdoche in New York almost feels so personal to Kaufman, like self-flagellating and, and uh, with the introspection. And this movie has a, a, a bit of a remove to me, even though it's like, it's talking about movies, it's talking about culture and it's wrapping that all around, um, a, a, I guess, male introspection and, and figuring out life. But like, there's a bit of a disconnect between Kaufman who seems to always put himself into the movies and this portrait of a character. I don't know. I wasn't necessarily like, thinking of how this was connected to Kaufman in some of the ways that his previous work had made me think about. I don't know. Yeah, it's that. not about art. And it's not about, like, it's about younger people than he is, obviously. It's kind there of is, about like, there art, is something. Though. It's definitely. Uh, it's kind of about art and how, like. It's I, not about an artist, mostly. It's about a wannabe artist. It's about someone who thinks that they could imagine themselves as an artist, right? As someone yeah. who creates poetry, as someone who creates art. It's about a kind of artistic I mean, yeah. it's about a kind of artistic transfiguration that is definitely present. Oh in god, so is yeah, human centipede. You guys are being too nice to this movie. <laughs> it's not about the the player. It's about the it's not how what's the spring goes. I I, I there's just there's just but it's it's not the singer it's the song there's nothing um, there's nothing it's not the song it's the singer. there's nothing about jake that makes me sympathetic to him even by the time that we like get to the point where i'm supposed to know it's all jake and like Wait, even, I, even why do you need to be sympathetic towards jake yeah i don't feel I mean, sympathetic I, towards jake no either. screenwriter on earth is more self-loathing than charlie kaufman this is a par for the course for what i expect from i mean the final scenes uh, the final scenes of this movie are quite sad and depressing and like for Jake to imagine himself in the ending of a beautiful mind, um, getting applause from all these people in his life who've come together apparently, and for him to perform. Oh, that's Oklahoma. the beautiful mind. Oh, yeah. I saw Katie, people saying, no, I saw I'm people so saying it referenced to beautiful mind. I, I, metal I saw a beautiful mind one time in 2001. <laughs> and I had no clue what also anybody wearing meant. Horrible old age yes. makeup, just like the I, movie. What did a beautiful mind win? Oh, I know it won Best Picture. I've seen it. I just can't remember it. <laughs> but you're you you of all people for all the Oscar talk. Wow, I'm true. supposed to have gotten. It is your duty to recognize wow. a verbatim, word for word quotation from the most iconic speech of *The Beautiful Mind*. Perhaps only second to the bar scene where he game theories a date out of Jennifer Connelly. Totally missed. I think that this movie is uh, missing the yes. self consciousness that Anomalisa had. That it was about an old sad white man. Hmm. Like, it's just that this one, it never stops to introduce it, and it's always very particular about only showing other characters as either women or his father. It just all feels creepy and gross, and nobody stops and says, outside of the pig thing, maybe, like, (laughs) this is creepy and gross. But I, you lose me with the decision that this movie is about a sad old white man, which I don't follow. 
So, well, because if it's if it's general the, if it's general enough to be about everybody, then that says that you think like everybody grew up on a farm and everybody thinks about maybe blaming their mom for like not controlling them enough or thinking that they were secretly that. not special enough. I feel like if it's if it's general, if it's general enough to be about things that aren't about a sad old white man thinking about killing himself, then it's like not general enough. It's too specific. And that, that's it feels like a Charlie Kaufman film. And maybe if this I was mean, like I, the Charlie Kaufman film, it would be different. This but feels like the least. I, I still feel like the movie thoughts. belongs to her. I still feel like it's her movie. I understand the, the who, prison. Who, who, who is she? Well, you're obsessed who? with Jesse Buck. Uh, who is she, though? She's a void. She's defined by negative space that a male character puts in her, and by necessity of the plot, anything could be in that negative space. We don't get a definition of it, and that's I what she says at the end. I mean, are you uh, the way you're describing characters and the kind of absolutes you use? I, I, I I'm surprised I'm defending David here, but um, <laughs> I, I do think that Kaufman has done this before, but is working in this mode more than ever in this kind of like Brechtian mode to get really high fluent about this which no that make that makes sense cast, to me as a theater kid like character use characters in different roles or use actors in different places in different roles and be really and make the audience aware of the filmmaking at all times and like the genre mode of this movie to make it kind of a horror like i feel like a lot of the scenes are just there to be pleasurable or to be provocative and they don't actually serve like not everything is is serving a greater purpose or has like a deep meaning, and um, some of it is just for weird pleasure. And I feel like that's the kind of epic theater of it all, to use that Brechtian phrase. Um, and that it's not really calling her like just the female character in the movie is kind of reductive. Like she's playing a lot of different roles in a lot of different places. But I think what Dave is forgetting, or or at least not vibing with the same way that I am, is that one of the things the movie is saying, and one of the things I think a lot of Charlie Kaufman's movies are saying, is that we are all sort of thought. We are all, whatever it is that we are in our own self-image is different from how it's constructed by anyone who looks at us, the people in our lives who know us. There's always that sort of impassable divide between us where we're all projecting onto each other. Everyone we know in our lives is all a projection uh, through the way that we see them. And again, this goes back to the Tyler Durden narrator-like relationship. If you want to extrapolate that to a more mundane Dane and domestic environment, this is the kind of movie to do that. And so I don't think that she is any more of a projection or invention than he is of us or of her or that any of these characters are from each other. And because she is the mind who we are, maybe not literally in a macro sense, but in the moment, in the movie, certainly in the car ride at the beginning, uh, whose head we're in. We feel her being unthought in real time. We feel her uh, coming up against the the boundaries and the peripheries of her existence and the, reaching these things that are not adding up and the details that she's not able to square. Um, you know, she is sort of being forced to think of herself as, as uh, there's contradictory thoughts coming from the man who's thinking of her for us. And I think like that is the way that Jesse Buckley is able to embody that does make her as dimensional and real as any of us are to each other. And I think that's one of the things that the movie is really circling um, and arrives at by the end. And I think you're just getting a little bit too hung up over that. That feels really dangerous uh, to me. Details. That feels really dangerous to me because what it sounds like you're saying is that I could create empathy within myself by creating like another person, which is not true. Well, where else does empathy come from? Wait, you're saying, wait, wait, okay, you're talking about being under, like, I don't, I don't think that's what this movie's about. 
What do you what, think it's about? What, what, what do you not think it's about? Like, like, I don't think... It's not that he is aware that the world is cold, and I think the... You know, the, the the younger version of the character even says, like, we figured out how to, like, you know, care about each other. Or, like, basically, they have, like, this loss of empathy sort of theme. And if that's the conclusion, like, that has to be the conclusion of the movie. Why create an avatar to try to disprove that, I feel like. So if you're like, if you could, if I could create a female presence inside of myself... Because there's an internal monologue there, I don't. That doesn't jive with me. I don't. I don't totally understand trying to translate it to reality. Like I feel like you saying like what the main character thinks is the moral of the story, or like 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 being in his. I don't think we're as in his head, the main character's head, Jesse Plemons' character, as you do, Dave. Like I think it's much more about like the way Charlie Kaufman is telling this story about people and the way we create each other for themselves. Well, uh, I, kind of, I, I follow more of what David's saying. What do you think, um, and to use a more specific example from the movie, so early on in the movie, he tries to recite a poem and really can't, and she doesn't like poetry, I think, is something is basically what it comes down to. And then later in the car ride, she says she is a poem. She is a poet. She loves poetry, and she's she written. A poem. This, she write, recites this beautiful poem. I mean, uh, just in a visceral way. I enjoy this movie. Hey, Jesse Puckley re- recites a poem. It's beautiful. Yes, I no, no. That, that part go on and on and on. All of the movie I like. It's a good movie. I'm just questioning like the why right. of it. No, no. But then, so my my point here is like, what do you think that move means in the in the thematic read? Like, what 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 is Coffin getting at? By having these kind of like ebbs and flows of what uh, Jake, I guess, is believing in one moment and and changing in his consciousness the next. She's thinking of ending things. And he is creating a story in his mind where she doesn't want to leave. So she goes from somebody that doesn't like poetry to a fucking poet. And not only that, but one that wrote one of his favorite poems from the book Rotten that we see in his room like later. Every time they come up against something negative in the story that should lead uh, in like a logical, like I'm dating someone standpoint, like the, her something about her character changes to make that acceptable within him until finally it doesn't. And it breaks because she doesn't have any definition. She has whatever she needs to fit into the cog of the story that we're on. And I guess like the only time that really starts confusing to me is I don't know and it irks me that I don't know because otherwise I could write off the movie is like, I got it. Like, let's move on. I'm not exactly sure who the shy girl is with the rash at the fucking Dairy Queen and why she's afraid for her. Uh, but that's that's well, the only thing I've. I'm Go ahead. I'm glad that you can't find the answer for yourself that you find agreeable. But I think you know <laughs> where we parted ways on this one is goes all the way back to the way you introduced the movie, which is as a puzzle, which is not at all how I think of it. Um, you know, Tenet is a puzzle and, uh, you know, a, uh, sometimes inscrutable one as far as I was concerned, even though, you know, again, Reddit has cracked the code, uh, even though there are still unanswered questions, maybe they're all time trap. I mean, whatever. Um, but we'll, we'll get Tenet, but I just didn't see the hard angles in this movie like that. I was much more interested in sort of the soft tissue of how, um, these ideas are coming together. But I do want to say, you know, we're talking about it in this very heady way, but there are, and I think, you know, a movie like Eternal Sunshine of the, same, of the Spotless Mind is the same way. It's only able to pull off this high concept stuff because it's grounded uh, in 
these very recognizable human situations and emotions, even if in this movie those emotions and situations are changing almost fast and you can keep up with. But I think that, like, from the moment she gets in the car in the beginning, it is as palpable an evocation of being in a relationship that you know is over and the inertia of sticking around and trying to figure out, you know, the the cost of, uh, you know, how to get away from it as clean as possible and knowing that you're sort of like living in this husk of a thing um, and that really weird sort of self-betraying queasiness of acting like you're going along with it while in your mind, you know, in a way that your partner can't hear. Um, and there's a great scene early in this movie where Jesse Plemons literally hears uh, the young woman think for a moment um, where you're just on completely different wavelengths and it, it feels like such a profound lie. Uh, and there's that great line in, in the book and also in the movie um, that it's like it's repeated several times in the first page of the book. It's kind of foundational, I think, to what Charlie Kaufman thought was interesting about adapting it, that, um, you know, thoughts, you can't, like, thoughts don't lie. I mean, they just sort of occur to you uh, unfiltered and um, the, they get complicated, you know, before they're given air and come out of the world. But I think uh, this movie is really a lot about just the way that we interact with our own thoughts and the relationship we have to our thoughts. And it, it makes a lot of sense why Charlie Kaufman tried to, I mean, you know, I think it's still credited as adapting Chaos Walking, which is this movie that Doug Lyman directed and has been in post-development hell for longer than most of us have been alive. It's supposed to come out in January. About a, yeah, but about oh. a, a world where everyone can hear each other think all the time uh, and the problems that arise from that. Um, it's sort what of to, you know, to, yeah, to bring everyone close together and, and have solidarity, but at the same time can prove very alienating. I mean, these are things that, that Kaufman is interested in. These are things that show up on every page uh, in even more inscrutable ways of his novel Ant Kind. Um, and they are ideas that when, you know, brought to life and animated with a certain emotionality, speak to me um, in a way that makes me a lot less interested in the who is what is where and what is actually happening of it all. Um, because I was going along with it, you know, following a certain emotional logic. So, uh, I don't know, but it sounds like Dave liked the movie anyway, even if we came to wildly for <laughs> no, no. about it. Yeah, I did like the movie. I just think if you're going to make a movie that has these potent things to say about those subjects, make the Joker so that people fucking see your movie. Oh my what? god! What? Oh boy! What? <laughs> David is make dead. Fight Club. I'm sorry. Ah, that was mean. That was. I can't. I can't end this uh, segment on that note. I. I the one thing. Hang that, on. I, okay. Yeah. Go. Okay, no, you go ahead. Well, I, I was going to start wrapping up, but you. Oh, you, okay. Well. One thing I would say is when the moment when the dream ballet starts uh, toward the very end, yes. kind of at the moment where you're starting to say, like, who is what is where, and you watch very literally the two main characters be replaced by these two other characters for this, like, seven-minute dream ballet that kind of sums up the plot of the movie, but also the plot of Oklahoma. Um, it felt like the most literal, like, explanation of kind of what we're talking about, where it's like, who is physically here and what character does not matter? This is the moment where we're going to express, like, the feelings of what this story is. I wish mo- they had kind of run with that a little bit more. More like that felt like such a really good summation of what it's talking about about relationships, like what David was saying about how you connect over space. But then there's this whole other thread about like terror of aging and like relationship with your family and all this stuff that didn't uh, add up to me with what the rest of the movie was. Um, And I I was just I was impressed by the way the Dream Ballet kind of helped me lock into what the movie was doing for that ten. I liked the Dream Ballet. I mean, unless you know Oklahoma, you don't understand yeah. why they have a dream ballet. <laughs> I cannot imagine seeing this movie. I'm without so fascinated. There's no, by... there's no moment where they're like, 
okay, get your copy of Oklahoma for this. Right. <laughs> like, I'm so fascinated by people, like, surprisingly, Candy, who uh, watched that last scene, which is still, even if you do pick up on the Beautiful Mind reference, still kind of a head fuck. But, I mean, I um, knew the Oklahoma part of it. I just oh, missed sure, the Beautiful sure. Mind part of it. Right. But, I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's like what you make of that speech at the end and, you know, if it gives you a different reading on its sincerity. Um, I think, you know, Kaufman has a lot of antipathy towards biopics like Your Beautiful Mind or Ed Wood or things like that that try to give people, real figures from history, moments of adulation and this sort of like cohesive life coming together in a perfect, you know, climactical before the credits roll. Um, and that's why I think there's something really unnerving about like the weird fade to the exterior of the school the next day at the very end of the movie. Um, but yeah, I... I yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, there are a lot of those things. You can find the clues for them scattered about the movie. Uh, I know that some of the props that are in uh, Jake's bedroom were placed there by the prop department and not deliberately by Kaufman, whereas others, like the Thing the thing DVD, for example, is not something that Kaufman put himself in, and which is unfortunate because otherwise there would have been some really great, uh, you know, uh, uh, hands-on creature work. But... Um, the Pauline Kale book for keeps, the book of poetry, the beautiful mind DVD. These things are all seeded, seeds that are sprouting throughout the movie. It's not a puzzle. Uh, fun stuff to look through. Not a puzzle. Strong, not a puzzle. strong Ron Howard and Robert Zemeckis disses in this. Yeah, movie. we didn't That's even talk about the, the Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis the Robert Zemeckis. The Robert Zemeckis this is not a diss at all. I mean, they shot that rom-com sequence and simply just needed a name for the end of it. And they chose Robert Zemeckis at random. Zemeckis was. I buy that. No, it's, this is, this is true. I, I mean, whoever's name you pick, you this. Um, but they, I, I mean, I don't, it doesn't feel deliberate. And, you know, again, in Antkind, in every other page, he's like actively shitting, you know, through the filter of this insufferable, character on a number of different filmmakers, uh, real and imagined. Yeah, but that's because he knows he no one's going to read Ankind. Uh, whatever. I don't think he has any reason to be coy about this. And also, you know, you can tell from anyone who's seen a Robert Zemeckis movie that... No, it's not like a Robert Zemeckis movie. Yeah. No, it watch... doesn't look like a fake Zemeckis movie, but, like, you slap a real person's yeah, name at the end exactly. of a crappy movie, like... Yes. It, it's still a diss. Like a diss. It doesn't it matter. Doesn't feel it's a like diss. a diss. They got his permission. The Ron Howard thing does feel like a diss. Not to Ron Howard so much as to a beautiful mind, but yes. uh, that is an unambiguous. It's all a diss. You're a diss. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of ending things. It's a great movie. It's on Netflix right now. Uh, give yourself over 134 minutes of your time. 134 minutes of pure discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. Diss. And then if you don't like it, you could agree with me. And watch the Joker, but you like apparently. it, yeah, yeah. But I'll take all the not liking people too. They could be part of my. I mean, <laughs> you can, you can come. I saw team. Joker. I know the people I need on my team. I'm thinking oh, of Lord. ending this segment. Remember how Joker came out like less than no, a right? Yeah, we're done. We're done. <laughs> it may not mean nothing at all. Understand nothing was done to me, so I don't plan on stopping at all. I want to shit forever, man. Uh, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Still, David and I will not be at any film festivals, so we'll be here. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can listen to the episodes. You can sh- share your love for Dave. That's a safe space. Uh, you don't have to be dragging Dave's ass on Twitter or whatever. You can go to Fighting in the Worm and exalt him. <laughs> fightinginthewarroom.com. 
Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a senior film critic for IndieWire. I'm definitely, you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich, but I would encourage you to find me at IndieWire and read my review of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which, uh, you know, agree or disagree, probably articulated my thoughts even better than I did here, as is usually the case. Uh, you can find all of us on Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. Leave us a review. We'll read them on the show. We will not blackmail you with Dave's life for now. Yes. But that may change in the future if you don't continue with this movies. Hey, I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E, where I frequently tweet that Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is the worst movie ever because people can have whatever opinions they want about movies and like them <laughs> or not. It uh, doesn't matter, though. My opinions are that that one is bad. You could also listen to me talk about Lost on The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast, uh, wherever fine podcasts are found. Oh, fuck. I forgot to promote the Legend of Korra podcast. Oh, we also do promote a it. Legend of Korra podcast called Republic City Dispatch. If you go to fightingintheworldroom.com slash Korra, you will see one page with all the episodes. There's 54 episodes now, including recent new episodes where Joanna Robinson talks to Jan Vardy, the voice of Korra herself, and we recover uh, book two spirits. Uh, if you hated Mulan, if you watched the live-action Mulan, and you're like, how did they fuck this up? Go watch Korra, actually. Korra is the best version of Mulan. It's a good version of Mulan. Wow. Uh, Dave, you maybe realize that but the way you troll uh, Snyder fans, that no matter what anyone tries to tweet at you about, I'm thinking of many things, you'll be immune. Yeah, that's right. They're on my bad. side. <laughs> You've fallen into my trap. Like, what sort of like Charlie Kaufman uh, Twitter hive are you imagining that's going to come from Dave's head? Um, the, the David, the Earl- I want to find that Twitter hive. The Ehrlich hive is determined to kill me. That's, <laughs> <laughs> it's an All those kids hive. at Emerson College. <laughs> yeah, come on, guys. Tell us where you land. Um, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com on the Little Gold Men podcast, where this week we're talking about the Toronto Film Festival. Uh, we also talked about I'm Thinking of Any Things last week, um, if you wanted to hear even more about that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can tell us who's wrong and who's right. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question. Which In was. honor of the Broken Hearts Gallery, what physical artifact from your past relationships belongs in a museum? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Okay. The Martian, Space Jam Gardens. I wrote this shit forever. Wake up and smell the garden. Fresher than the harvest. Step up to the target. If I had one guess, then I guess I'm just New Orleans. And I will never stop like I'm running from the cops. Hop up in my car and tow my chauffeur to the top. Life is such a fucking roller coaster. Then it drops. I'm done. I'm done. We're done.